Luke 21, picking up in verse 5. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, He, that is Jesus, said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. The Jerusalem temple was the center of Jewish social and spiritual life for nearly a thousand years, about 950 years, uh, leaving out that 70-year pause for captivity. Before that, the tabernacle stood at the center of Jewish life for 479 years. 39 years they walked in the wilderness, 14 years at Gilgal, and then 369 years the tabernacle stood at Shiloh. And then after that there was another 57 years at Nob and then at Gibeon before ultimately it was replaced by the structure, the temple. Solomon's temple. Solomon was the first to build the temple based on David's designs in 960 B.C. The temple stood for 374 years before it was destroyed in 586 B.C. Again, 70 years, there was a pause where there was no temple while the people were in captivity. But the exiles returned and they built the second temple, not as glorious as Solomon's temple, You may recall Ezra tells us that the the old men wept even as the young men shouted for joy. The old men who remembered the glory of the previous temple. But they finished it in 515 B.C. It took them 21 years to build that temple because of external pressure and permit issues. (laughs) Little has changed in 2,000 years. For 496 years after that, it stood, and not a whole lot of change was made until Herod came along. Herod the Great. Herod had a nasty reputation as a cruel dude. That's what you get for living life in the fast lane. But Herod, some of you Eagles fans will get that, Herod was a master builder. And the, the remnants and the, and the residual of, of his incredible architecture is still to be seen all over Israel today. Many of the sites visited on our Israel tours, you see the remnants of what Herod did. Incredible, amazing craftsman, artisan, architect. And he began in 19 B.C. a vast uh, renovation of the Second Temple. It was still the Second Temple, but completely different. And that renovation project lasted beyond Herod's life. In fact, it took 80 years before it was completely finished. 90 feet in height. It was another 20 feet higher than the top of the Dome of the Rock Mosque today. The temple was 1,500 feet long, 1,200 feet wide. It was a huge edifice and it was absolutely stunning. Solomon's temple was built of purest white marble. On all three sides, the two sides in the back, you saw that white marble. Josephus wrote that from a distance when you saw the temple, it looked like a snow-capped mountain. Because that white marble was so impressive. And the front, the front was even more so. It was absolutely dazzling. Plates of solid gold covered the entire front of the temple so that on sunny days you couldn't even look at it. It was so blindingly bright. And in addition to this, there were gold plaques that surrounded both sides and the back of the large donors. 
We're not doing that on our building. Some places still do that today. You get the memorial plaques. And Herod himself, not to be outdone, he donated a huge golden twisting vine that wrapped itself away, its way around the front of the temple. And in fact, that's probably what Jesus was alluding to as on this Thursday night, on the night of his betrayal, he's walking across the Cadron Valley with the apostles and up to the Mount of Olives. And he looks back and John 15 tells us, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, they marveled at the beautiful stones and the votive gifts. Gives you kind of an idea of what it was that the apostles were looking at as they came out of the temple. And they said, look at this marvel, this wonder of the ancient world. And it stood only six years after its completion in 64 B.C., which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. I want to give you five great events as we walk through Luke 21 this morning. Five events to be aware of. One fulfilled, four yet to be fulfilled. And the first one is the Great Fall. The Great Fall of A.D. 70. Why? Why did the temple fall? Why did, as Jesus said, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. A complete eradication, complete wiping out of the temple. The great fall of Jerusalem. Why? Two words. Jerusalem idol. Jerusalem idol. It's ironic because that's why the people went into captivity in 586 B.C. in the first place. was idolatry was rampant throughout the land. And so as we've talked about, and you know, the Lord said, fine, I will give you idolatry. I'm going to put you into the center of idolatry in the entire world, Babylon, and let you feast on that for a while and see how that works for you. And kind of like the old Shikshadel hospital smoking program where you sit in a room and smoke, 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 smoke until you were so smoked out you hated cigarettes. That's what God did with the idolatry. I'll give you more. Until it's coming out of your ears, I'll give you idolatry. Well, when the exiles came back into the land, they never again worshipped idols. Except for the temple. The temple became an idol for the people of Israel. Anytime we look at man-made things for security, it's idolatry. Anytime we look at man-made things, it be it an edifice, it could be an education, it could be a profession, a portfolio, a calling in your life, if you look to that for your security, a marriage, a church, a family, a tradition, if you look to these things for your security, understand God will take them down. Because He is not to be replaced by any other thing. That if we are going to find security in this life, in this world, we'll find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him alone. And so you might want to think as we look at these things this morning and consider what happened in the great fall of the temple, what are you building? What is it that you are building in your life? There is only one foundation that is permanent. Only one is secure. Jesus earlier in His ministry, referring to the temple, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, and comparing it to Himself, said, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. You look to the temple as that, as that proof positive that the land is secure. There's something greater than that here. Someone greater. And He spoke of Himself. 
Paul later said in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is your foundation. He is your rock. He is my security. And there is no other. So for all its magnificence, the temple came down. Interestingly, the Shekinah glory, God's glory, that glorious cloud that entered Solomon's temple, never entered the second temple. Not at the time of the exiles, not when Herod retrofitted the whole thing. His glory never entered in the form of that cloud. Of course, the prophet Haggai tells us in chapter 2, verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. How could the latter glory be greater than the former when the glory of God resided in the first temple? And it's very, very, very simple. The glory of God in Jesus Christ entered the second temple. And Jesus taught in those temple courts. Jesus walked into that place and so the glory of God would be there. I think Haggai also has some implications for a future temple as well. We'll talk about that when we get to Haggai. And that, by the way, is not far off. But verse 6, again, Jesus said, As for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Now I had a question brought to me just two weeks ago. What about the western wall? And what about the eastern gate? And what about those massive stones of Herod? And we know they're Herod stones that you can see literally underground in what's called the Rabbi's Tunnel. As you head along the western wall and go underground, you can see Herod's building. What about all those ancient stones? Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another, yet you can see them stacked up going up the side of the Kotel, the western wall. What about that? Gang, those are retaining walls. Those are not the temple. The western wall at which the Jewish people pray today is not what's left of the temple. Herod came along and he built up Mount Moriah. He built it up in a huge 35-acre square with retaining walls running all around it, flattened out the top, and then was able to build, construct his larger temple around what was the smaller second temple on the top. What's left now that we have today are the retaining walls. Jesus is talking about the temple. And the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was so complete that archaeologists still have not been able to determine exactly where it stood. There are those who say it's right where the Dome of the Rock is today. Not so. I don't believe so. I think Jewish writings and other indicators and other hints tell us otherwise. We stood on the place, I believe was where it was before, which would have been north of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. A place where there's a little, we've talked about, I'll remind you of this, a little cupola, a little stone covering there. It's the only other place on the entire Temple Mount with exposed bedrock. It sits directly to the west of the Eastern Gate. And I believe that that is the location of the Temple That little cupola, the the Muslims call it the Dome of the Tablets and the Dome of the Spirit, which is very interesting. So, for all that, the temple went down. Spending some time on this before we even get to the rest of the prophecy because it is critical to believing the long-term prophecy of Jesus here in Luke 21. 
If you miss the short-term prophecy, he prophesied, and within 40 years, boom, it took place. Exactly as he said, not one stone left upon another. If you miss that, then you might question what he says after that. But this short-term prophecy gives legitimacy to the long-term prophecies of Jesus. How so? God said in Deuteronomy 18.21, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if a prophet comes along and starts telling us something if it's not truly God's Word? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. He says the proof is in the pudding. How do you prove a prophet? He gives short-term prophecy and it comes to pass exactly as he says. Then you can trust the long-term prophecy. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He gives a short-term prophecy that now sets the stage for what is long-term. The literal fulfillment of Jesus' introduction to the rest of this prophecy now validates the whole thing. Verse 7. They questioned Him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The rabbi's Jewish disciples are now asking a Jewish rabbi about Jewish things. And I want to expand this a little bit. Listen to the question as Matthew reveals it in Matthew 24, verse 3. Same question, but here was... The perspective is given by Matthew. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age? I read that, and I hear three questions. Again, when will these things happen? This fall of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age? I hear three questions in Matthew. We see two questions in the Gospel of Luke, but the apostles assumed it was all one thing. They weren't asking three questions. They were asking what they thought was one question. They assumed that the fall of the temple, the coming of Jesus into His kingdom, and the end of the age were all one event. From a Jewish mindset, that all had to happen at the same time. They didn't understand that there would be any difference between them. Jesus knew better. And so he answered their question both immediately and distantly. So keep that in mind. Verse 8. He said, See to it that you are not misled. Well, we could stop right there and do an hour teaching just on that. You know, you have the responsibility to not be misled. You do. I do. See to it. That you're not misled. Well, how can I not be misled? Be in the Word. Test everything by the Word of God. Take it back to the Word constantly. See to it that you're not misled. For many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and the time is near. Do not go after them. He says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Jesus is now beginning to stretch it out. He's beginning to take their three questions that they thought was one and say, you're really asking me three distinct things and they are distinct. We're going to bring this wider now. Then He continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Right there, gang, for the first time that happened in 1914. 
Nation will rise against nation. Not just, not just an army against an army, but entire nations mobilizing against other nations. Kingdoms against kingdoms. And the implication is world war. And the first time was World War I in 1914 to 1918. The second time following that, World War II, 1939 to 1945. Jesus says this is going to happen before, before the end. He goes on and he says, there will be great earthquakes. Anyone paying attention to the earthquakes in the news lately? You might say, well, that's, that's just a, a, a rare occurrence. In the last century, there have been more earthquakes reported than at any other time in history. And if you graph the number of earthquakes happening on planet Earth, if you just do a little graph and go back a century, just a hundred years, go back and graph them, what you would see is a graph that goes straight up in terms of frequency and the increase of earthquakes on the planet. Interesting. And Jesus says, and in various places there will be plagues, that's pestilence. Many of you know that that our antibiotics are not working so well anymore. That there are some diseases, some illnesses, some pestilence that are becoming very difficult to stop in their tracks. Hunger or famines will come. There will be terrors. The word for terrors there is phobotron. Phobotron, where we get our word phobia. Fears. There's going to be fear. I have never in my life seen more fear among people than I see in the world today. Over everything. Fear of the government. Fear of foreign powers. Fear of taxes. Fear of what's happening. Fear of where we are. Constant fears. Going back to security, and so people are trying to find security in all kinds of areas... Instead of going back to the foundation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, and great signs from heaven. There are a handful of folks who are excited because Tuesday marks the first blood moon of the Tetrad. We talked about the four blood moons. A tetrad is four consecutive blood moons, one after another. That is uh, total eclipses that result in that reddish colored moon. There is a blood moon tetrad that begins this Tuesday, April 15th. The first one on Passover. The second one is at the end of this year in October, our time frame, and it is the last feast of Israel for the year, Sukkot. Feast of Tabernacles. The next blood moon lands on Passover of 2015. The next blood moon lands on Sukkot of 2015. Coincidence? Perhaps. By the way, if if we get clouded over here, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday, but if you want to see this first blood moon, you can check it out at griffithobs.org. Griffith Observatory is going to be streaming it live, so you can, you can check it out on Tuesday if you'd like to take a look at that, griffithobs.org. A lot of people are excited about the blood moons. People are asking me, is that the sign of the rapture? To which I respond, there is no sign for the rapture. There is no sign that precedes the rapture of the church. Be clear about that. So what does it mean? What do the blood moons mean? What does the tetrad mean? I'll tell you at the end of 2015. Get right back to you on that. 
Okay, we got to keep in mind Jesus is addressing addressing Jewish issues. He's talking about the fall of the temple. He's talking about the end of the age. He's talking about the coming of Messiah. All of these things very Jewish, and that's what makes this blood moon tetrad so interesting because they're landing on the most important Jewish feasts two years in a row, four blood moons in a row. Passover, tabernacles, Passover, tabernacles, as though bracketing the Jewish feasts, the Jewish holidays. And that fascinates me, and I'm curious about it, and I'm not putting a lot of stock into it because it's a sign. And signs are interesting. And Jesus says there will be signs, but we're also told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. What are we supposed to do? We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so I advise you, if you want to check out the blood moon on Tuesday the 15th, fine, take a look. But don't take your eyes off Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He is the one about whom all things are focused, on whom all things look. We preach Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ coming as King in His second coming. And again, if this unusual tetrad is significant, and it may be, it is still not a sign, a signal of the rapture of the church. Nothing is going to signal the rapture of the church. Nothing comes first. That is a day unknown. It's a day that will happen. It's a day Jesus says that will surprise you You know, people are not going to know the day or the hour when it happens. They will be surprised by it. So what Jesus is teaching here 2,000 years ago to His Jewish apostles is a long road. A long road that stretches between the great fall of Jerusalem and His great return. And in between, we come to the second thing to note here, what I'll just call the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Jesus now establishing that all these things are going to happen before before His great return, begins now to talk about that time frame in between. And He talks about the Great Commission. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 28:19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I find it interesting Jesus didn't say go evangelize all the nations. He said go make disciples. Are we not supposed to evangelize? Absolutely. But for the purpose of discipleship. Well, how do you do that? You go in relationship. And sometimes we forget that. You know, the whole idea of door-knocking campaigns. It's great, trying to get to people's homes. Who was it? Someone was telling me, uh, I think it was Ted, was telling me just this last week that he remembers going on a door-knocking campaign and they didn't have anybody responding. And this one lady responded to the message, gave her life to Jesus, they said hallelujah, and they left, and that was it. And as Christians, sometimes you can do that. You can think, evangelism, I got this person to accept Christ. Check, and I move on. Jesus says, don't move on. Make disciples. You want to know the best way? Because I talk about evangelism all the time, right? I'm always telling you, talk about Jesus, share Jesus, tell people about Jesus. And I've been asked many times, how do I do that? What does that mean? Relationship. Tell people you know. Invite people to come with you to hear the teaching of the Word. 
Bring people with you to a small group. Talk to them about Jesus. Walk with them related to Jesus. Make disciples. It's not about checking the box. It's about inviting a life to be saved. And that takes a commitment to walk with somebody. And that is what I believe Jesus is talking about. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, yes, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And by the way, you can't cover that in one hour. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. But Bible students, do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper relating to this call of evangelism discipleship? Just a day after this teaching or so, look over at Luke 22, verse 35. They're there in in that upper room, having shared that final Passover. And Jesus said to them, verse 35, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And He said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. And he's not talking about arming for battle. He's talking about preparation. He says, I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with transgressors, unquote. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here here are two swords. And he said to them, enough. (laughs) That's the sign right there that Jesus was not talking about arming themselves. It's enough. The Greek word there is pretty explanatory the way it's written. Enough, guys. You're missing the point. The point is, it's going to get tough. It was easy when I sent you out before. Now it's going to get tough. Well, why is that? Because Jesus says, I'm now going to be numbered with the transgressors. I thought about that. We talked about this Wednesday night. What does that mean? Why should it get tougher for us as followers of Jesus now that Jesus has been numbered with the transgressors? What does it mean? It means Jesus became sin. Numbered with transgressors. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But here's the problem. I don't want to know I'm a sinner. And the message of grace carries with it an inherent message of lostness. And if I go telling someone Jesus loves you and wants to forgive you, automatically what I'm saying is they need to be forgiven. And people don't want to hear that. I'm okay. You're okay. We're good, right? Grace reveals the stains in our lives. Grace does that. Because grace would wash those stains away. But you've got to be willing to be washed. And I don't want to see the stains. And I don't want to know about my sin. And I don't want my past revealed. I don't want to be told that I'm lacking. Who does? And Jesus says, because I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors or for the transgressors, it's going to get tough now. It's not just about walking into a kingdom. It's about having your life washed and cleansed and sanctified and purified from the sin sickness that you're in right now. And people have hated Jesus for that. And have hated the message for that. And it makes it tough. It does. 
John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so for 2,000 years, yeah, it's been tough. 2,000 years, it's been a struggle. We're going to get back to Luke 21 in just a second here. But beginning with the apostles, every single apostle would be martyred with the exception of Judas who committed suicide and John, the last of the apostles. And they tried to kill him. Remember what they did? They boiled him in oil. So every apostle went through serious either martyrdom or persecution. In the first 283 years of the church, estimates of up to 10 million Christians were martyred for their faith. That's how it started. That was the beginning. Well, thank goodness we don't live in days like that. In the last century, the 20th century alone, the number of Christians in the world who have lost their lives for Jesus stands at 45 million. That's in a hundred years. Ten million in the first 283 years of the church, and in the last hundred years of the church, 45 million. Not us. Church in America has had it relatively easy, haven't we? It's been all right. Oh, but we, we've suffered. We've had permit issues. <laughs> they, they tacked a sign up on our barn saying you can't meet several years ago. Oh, no. It's the worst. We haven't even tasted it, gang. And I believe things are getting more difficult. We're still not even close. I believe they will probably get worse. And I'm not meaning to be discouraging, but... The real question is, okay, how do we face that? How do we handle it? Listen to Jesus' words, Luke 21, verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for not my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Stop there. Remember the fact that Luke is probably... Can't say for sure, but but probably writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts as a defense briefing for Paul before the governor in Rome, before the Caesar in Rome. And so to write this in, I think, is beautiful. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. He says, Jesus says, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. What? This is one of the few times, in fact, it's the only time I've been able to find in all of Scripture, the only time where Jesus says, don't prepare. Whatever you do, don't be ready. Be sure you don't have your ducks in a row. That's so opposite the teaching of Jesus. He's always saying be ready. He's always saying be prepared. He's always saying keep your eyes fixed on the Son of Man. Look for His coming. Be ready for it. Be sober and alert, Paul says. And all of a sudden here he says, make up your minds not to prepare. Interesting. Parable after parable, he says, be on your guard. Be prepared. Not in this case, verse 15. He says, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. What is he saying? Listen, he's saying, don't defend Depend on Him. 
Don't defend yourself. Depend on Him. And that's the context of this. Make up your mind not to be on the defensive. Actually, we're called to be on the offensive. Right? With with the name of Jesus and the grace of the Gospel. But we're not to be defending ourselves. But depending upon Jesus. And with apologies to Christian apologists. (laughs) And I I think there is absolutely a place in the church and in the world for, for Christian apologists, those who would defend the Gospel. But understand this. All the learning, all the factoids, all the head knowledge available does not bear the power of the Spirit of Christ. And you know you've probably given out facts before and seen someone still just look stone-faced. And you're like, but, 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 but look at the facts! Look at the proof! Look at the evidence! And they go, it lacks the power if the Spirit is not involved. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Mark 13, 11, Jesus said when they arrest you and hand you over, the, the same teaching. He says, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, it is the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Clever sayings, the list of facts, does not carry the power that the Holy Spirit carries. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul affirms this. He says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Answer to the question, how do we bear the Great Commission, especially in a world that doesn't want to hear it? How do we take the the Gospel? How do we make disciples when it gets more and more difficult in this world? Through fears and famines and fires and foes as He's listed out before us. How do we bear the Great Commission in any circumstance of life? Don't defend. Depend on Him. Don't defend. Depend on Him. Oh! Okay, so I'll just stop coming Sunday morning and Sunday night because I really don't need the Word of God anymore. Stupid! That's not what he's saying. How do you learn to depend on Jesus? There's two ways. Two, two ways only. Prayer and the Word of God. You want to depend on Jesus? Talk to Him. You want to learn to depend on Jesus? You need to be in His Word. Constantly. Daily. We need to be in the Word of God if we're going to develop that glorious dependency on Christ that allows Him to work through us wherever we are. And the more I have the Word in my soul and in my spirit, the more the Holy Spirit has the Word to speak through me. The more He can use what He has given me in His Word. There's a dynamic there. And I've seen the battle in the church between the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God. And I say, why do we battle it? It's both. We cannot have the Word without the Spirit, and you cannot have the Spirit without the Word. God has given us both His Word and His Spirit so that we can navigate this season of life. 
And we can do it with the power of the Spirit and the truth, the veracity of God's Holy Word. Don't defend yourself. Depend on Him. Verse 16. He says, But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. I read that and I thought, then I've already missed something. (laughs) Not a hair of your head will perish. He says, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now wait a minute. Not a head of your hair, hair of your head will perish. Did I say head of your hair before? I mean, not a hair of your head will perish, and yet every apostle but John died a martyr. And John was fried in oil. Not a hair will perish. Was Jesus wrong? And what about the 10 million Christian martyrs? And what about the 45 million of the last century? Something's not right here. I can give you two answers for this. One is an eternal answer. And the eternal answer is, if you're looking at this as a picture, not a hair of your head will perish. Jesus could very easily be saying, the worst someone can do to you is kill you. They cannot take away your eternity. They cannot take away our relationship. They cannot remove your salvation. Worst case scenario. You know, Paul got his head chopped off. That's how he died. He was beheaded. Not a hair of his head perished. (laughs) So Jesus may just be saying that. You know, that that in essence, look, don't worry about the physical because spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, no problem. You're going to make it. But I think there's something more specific. Jesus doesn't just throw words around like that. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, that's got to find some meaning somewhere. And I believe we can find that in the Scriptures. The Great Commission, and please understand this, even though it is the call of the church, the Great Commission will not be accomplished by the church. We're not going to finish the job before we're taken. Before the rapture happens, before the church is called up, we're not going to finish. We're not going to evangelize the entire world. Oh, I know what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And that is a favorite verse of missionaries today. And well, it should be. But because of that verse, there are those who say, until we evangelize the whole world, Jesus won't take us home. And that's not true. Because there is no sign, there is no work of man that precedes the rapture. There's nothing that we do to gain that. Well, then what are you saying? I'm saying the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the entire world, but that preaching, that ministry, that message is going to continue long after we're here. At least for seven years after we're here. There is a unique group of missionaries who the Bible tells us truly will not lose a hair of their heads. Why? Because they're sealed. I think Jesus is talking about the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Jewish evangelists in that time of tribulation 
after the church has been removed from the world, who will not lose a hair of their heads because they are sealed in their salvation to take the message of the gospel, all 144,000 of them, into the world. And again, you might say, well, so that happens in the tribulation, right? Yes, and I believe that we are getting there in Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 19 again. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. I shared this with our staff on, on Friday. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I really like the King James translation a little bit better. The word endurance, hupomone in the Greek, has the meaning of, of, of patience, but it's, it's enduring patience. It's a patience that hangs in there. It's a patience that is not swayed easily. It's someone who holds fast. Hupomone. In your patience, the King James says, you will gain, you will possess your lives, but the word lives there, gang, it's souls. In your patience, possess ye your souls. Your mind, seat of intellect, your reason, your thinking. In other words, the way to keep your head, the way to patiently endure, is to depend on the Lord. If you will be patient in the Lord, if you will depend upon the Lord, you're going to keep your head. You're going to keep your wits. You're going to keep your mind. Some are going to take flack in this season, in this age. Some will take flack just for being Christians. You'll be looked at as stupid, as ignorant, as unscientific, as those who really... You believe that stuff? Some are going to be martyred for it. Others, the Jewish 144,000, are going to go through the fire completely unsinged. But Isaiah, in any case, tells us, Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But Jesus continues, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. What's that talking about? There are those who immediately say AD 70. The fall of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus was warning against. And when you see Jerusalem besieged, get out. Right? And truly, when Rome besieged Jerusalem at that time, the Jews did not believe it would come to the fate that it came to. They didn't believe that Jerusalem was going to fall. They didn't believe it. They saw Rome surrounding the city and they didn't believe Jerusalem would go down. They rejected it outright. Why? The temple was still standing. Our temple's here. Our security. And as long as the temple stands, fine. As long as I've got my portfolio together, fine. As long as my church is there, good. As long as this person is in my life, as long as that profession is going well, I'm fine. They believed they were absolutely fine. And there's a a display. We didn't get to see it this year on the trip to Israel. It's called the Burnt House. 
It's in Jerusalem. It was a, an amazing archaeological find of a house on the hill looking out at the Temple Mount from the western side that they discovered was the home of a priest of the temple. The house had been completely burned and they found two things in it. They found a Roman sword and they found the remains of a little girl's arm. That was the only skeletal remain that was there, was this little girl's arm obviously cut off. They didn't believe it. They just, there's no way this is going to happen. And so, in AD 70, one million Jews died in Jerusalem. 97,000 more Jews were taken captive, and it was the worst calamity of the Jewish people in history, that is, until 1933. Check this out. Researchers at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum have just released documentation that astounds even the most informed scholars steeped in the previously known statistics of German atrocities. Here is some of what has now been conclusively discovered related to the Holocaust. There were more than 42,500 Nazi ghettos and camps throughout Europe from 1933 to 1945. Let me repeat that statistic. Throughout Europe, 42,000 500 Nazi camps and ghettos. There were 30,000 slave labor camps. We're talking camps here. We're talking places that Jews and those opposed to Nazism were sent. 1,000 prisoner of war camps, 500 brothels filled with sex slaves, and thousands of other camps used for euthanizing the elderly and infirm, performing forced abortions, Germanizing prisoners, or transporting victims to killing centers. And listen to this, the best estimate using current information available is 15 to 20 million people died in the Nazi Holocaust or were imprisoned in sites controlled by the Germans throughout the European continent. How did it happen? No one believed it could. There's no way that could happen. There are people today who say the Holocaust was a myth in the face of staggering, staggering evidence. They just didn't believe it could happen. Josephus tells us that there was one group of people back in A.D. 70 who got out, who fled Jerusalem before the city was surrounded. They fled across the Jordan River to a city in the Decapolis called Pella, and they survived. You know who that Jewish sect was? Christians. Christians who read... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and recognize her desolation is near, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. And the Christians believed it, took Jesus at his word, and they fled Jerusalem, and not a single Christian died in AD 70. Not a single one. Josephus lets us know that. Well, so... Are you saying that that Jesus is talking about A.D. 70 then, here in the midst of the Olivet Discourse? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that the Christians in the first century applied it that way. They applied it to their own lives. They applied it to what they saw going on. They made application from the Word of God and it saved their lives. And we do that all the time. We will take Jewish prophecy 
that we know is for Israel will be fulfilled in Israel and we apply it to ourselves. And in making that application, life is better for it. Or we are saved from some travesty, from some difficulty, from some problem, simply because we say, Jesus, we know your word is amazing, phenomenal, so we're going to take you at your word in all circumstances of our lives. Christians did that in the first century. But I need you to understand that though they applied it that way, the warning here goes far beyond the tragedy of the first century. It goes far beyond A.D. 70. One million Jews killed, 97,000 captured, compared to 15 to 20 million who were slaughtered in the Nazi Holocaust. Minimum of 6 million Jews who lost their lives then. You tell me which one was worse. The Holocaust far surpasses what happened in A.D. 70, and yet in Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, nothing like it will ever happen, will, ha- has ever happened, or will ever happen again. And so the very fact that we have the Nazi Holocaust in the last century tells us it couldn't have been AD 70, it was something worse. And by the way, the tribulation that the Bible talks about will be worse than the Nazi Holocaust. It'll be worse in scope, in size, in, in the toll of death. What am I talking about? Number three in your notes, the great tribulation. Got to move verse 22. Because these are days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. And that is the key verse right there. All things which are written were not fulfilled in AD 70. This this situation, this surrounding of Jerusalem, this desolation of Jerusalem, gang, it has to be at a time when all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because it will be more difficult to flee, to get out. He says, For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Again, Jesus calls these days of vengeance about which all things written will be fulfilled. In Matthew 24, Jesus includes the abomination of desolation. Daniel's prophecy of Antichrist setting up his his throne in the Jewish temple and proclaiming himself to be God. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11 talks about the abomination of desolation and that did not happen in AD 70. Jesus said it will happen at this time. It will kick off the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. That last three and a half years Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. Now, for any of you, if I'm doing a flyby here, take the time to check out what I'm saying. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Matthew 24, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Or just do our entire Revelation study online and you'll get it. But Jeremiah said, Alas! Jeremiah 30, verse 27. For the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. No Jew on Mount Zion or in Jerusalem escaped in AD 70. They were not saved from it. But turn in your Bibles quickly. Keep a finger there and go back to the book of Joel toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. The book of Joel, chapter 2. It's 
soon as we finish our study in Luke, by the way, we're jumping back to Hosea. So we'll get Hosea, Joel, Amos. We'll head on through and finish the Minor Prophets. And I believe we're probably going to be done if, if the Lord uh, allows us, if He tarries, by the end of the year with the Hebrew Scriptures. But Joel chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. What is the day of the Lord? It is the tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's distress, as Jeremiah said. It's described by Joel in verse 2 as a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. That's what Jesus quotes in Matthew 24. This day that's coming will be so horrific, so huge, so massive in its scope, nothing like it will ever have happened, nor will ever happen again. Jesus just confirms what Joel was saying. Skip down to verse 30 of Joel chapter 2. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Note that the Lord says, I will do this. The Lord did not do that in AD 70. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about, note this, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered from Mount Zion, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, and dramatically here, though no Jew escaped in A.D. 70, though the tribulation will be far worse, far more horrific, Jews will escape. And that's a big difference between the fall in 70 and the great tribulation. There are those who will call upon the name of the Lord who will escape in the day of the Lord, Zechariah tells us, one third of all Jews will make it through the fire. Romans 11.26, Paul says, again, you've heard this so many times, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Israel. Jacob. Back to Luke 21. He says in verse 24, continuing on about this this season, this time of great tribulation. The Bible depicts that as a seven year period of time. I won't go into why right now, but it's in Revelation. It's very clearly described. Again, Daniel describes it in Daniel chapter 9. A seven year period of time that is yet to happen on the earth. In verse 24 it says, They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Romans. Followed by Byzantines. Followed by Muslims, followed by Ottoman Turks, followed by the British, followed by the Jordanians, followed by the useless nations, followed across the last 2,000 years, trampled underfoot by Gentiles. We have watched this prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes. That when the Jews lost Jerusalem in AD 70, it has been trampled underfoot ever since then. Now some might say, well wait a minute Rick, but I know that the Jewish people, the Israelis, retook Jerusalem in 1967. In the Six Day War. 
They retook Jerusalem. It is now, they call it their capital. Our country has yet to recognize it as such. And we should, but we haven't yet. But So they have Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is no longer trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Oh, we are so mistaken if we believe that. Don't you realize that the very heart of Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by Gentiles? It's called the Temple Mount. And it's remarkable that in the center of this city that is controlled by the Jewish people, that is under the authority of the Jewish people, in the very center on that Temple Mount, the centerpiece of Jewish faith is held by the Palestinian Authority. And the Jews do not have jurisdiction. We were, our group was shouted down by a Palestinian when we were up there this last time. In fact, before we were shouted down, we watched several Palestinians get very upset coming out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and began shouting because a guy came onto the Temple Mount who works for the Temple Institute. Some of you who were there, you remember that. It was, it was kind of a cool scene. You know, I, I, I moved behind Cheryl just in case they started throwing things. But no, it was very tense. And they were shouting, Al-Akbar! You know, they are shouting their, their thing to their, to their God. And this guy came and left. And then we went down. We were at the eastern gate. And being like we tend to be, we were being a little joyful. <laughs> and we were laughing. And uh, one of the Palestinian guards called down and shouted at us to be quiet. Show some respect. And I'm like... Well, what about your guys that were just shouting at that guy? I guess that doesn't count. Jerusalem, gang, is still trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, just as Jesus said, until the times of the Gentiles are complete. And so the Gentiles will run roughshod over all the way through and to the Great Tribulation. Through the Great Tribulation... But after the day of the Lord, after the great tribulation, something else happens. Isaiah says in Isaiah 63 verse 4, The day of vengeance was in my heart, the Lord says. Time of the wrath of God, the great tribulation. But my year of redemption has come. And so Jesus turns to the event of His return. Number four in your notes, the great expectation. The great expectation, verse 25, there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. And some say, haven't we seen that? And I say, not like we're going to see it, or not like the world will. It's going to be far more dramatic than anything we've seen. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Revelation 6-19, through especially chapters 8-18, through detailed the most dramatic outpouring of God's wrath the world has ever seen. But at the end of that time, God is saying, Jesus says, at that time, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. And He's not talking to us. He's not talking to the church. In fact, understand, when you jot down in your notes the great expectation, this is not the great expectation of the church. What? I I thought we were supposed to expect Jesus' second coming. Listen, the great expectation of the return of Messiah is a Jewish expectation. 
It is Israel's great expectation. We will have already been with Jesus for at least seven years prior to this time. Because the Bible says the church is going to be called up. Jesus hasn't really talked about it here. It was a mystery that began to be really revealed by Paul. But the church hasn't been, is not, the church will have been caught up with Jesus, residing with him during that time, protected from tribulation. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's going to happen. But this is the great expectation of the faithful remnant of Israel who make it through that tribulation period. And the surviving tribulation saints. That is those people who come to faith in Jesus who are not Jews during the tribulation. And the Bible says there's going to be a massive number of those. This is the second coming of Yeshua HaMashiach. This is the great expectation of Israel. It is not your great expectation. It is not mine. Why, Rick? What are you saying? I'm saying we are the great congregation. We're the great congregation. You could call us the cloud. Everyone's real excited about clouds nowadays, you know? Yeah, I got all my stuff in the cloud. Like, man, that doesn't sound too secure to me. It's in a cloud. Gang, Jesus comes, Jesus comes in a cloud with power and great glory. Guess who's in the cloud? The Bible tells us the church is. Already having been caught up to be with Jesus, saved from, protected from that tribulation, now returning with Jesus. Well, where do you get that? First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. He will establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Jude 14 tells us Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Saints. Revelation 19. I love to go here. Verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That is what Jesus does through us that clothes us with righteousness. The fine linen describes that. Well, Revelation 19 verse 14 says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Coming back with Him. Surrounding Him as a cloud. In other words, the bride wears army boots. And we ride with Jesus and we return with Him. The great expectation of the second coming of Messiah is Israel's expectation. We're the great congregation who comes with Him. We've already been there. And now to finish this out, Jesus draws back a bit. He tells them a parable. (laughs) Some of you are looking at that going, how are we going to get done without another hour here? We will. Just (laughs) ride with me. He tells them a parable that I think more squarely sets these things at the end of this generation than any other thing Jesus ever said. Verse 29, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can count on it. This is going to happen. Matthew gives us the same parable. The parable of the fig tree. Biblically, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. I can give you verse after verse about this. I'll just give you one. Hosea 9, verse verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see the reference of the fig tree being a picture of Israel. And so just as the eagle is to America today, the fig tree is to the Jewish state. Canada has the maple leaf. France has the french fries. You know, you have... Israel has the fig, the fig tree. Anyone recall what Jesus did to a fig tree that very week? He withered it. He said, well, Matthew 11, verse 12, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves... For it was not the season for figs, but it was the season, gang, for early figs. Which you can eat, which are sustaining. They don't taste very good, but they're edible, and they can get you through the day if you're hungry. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And he was referring to Israel. There was a parable, a living parable, right then and there. And the disciples, gang, were listening. Are you? Am I? In 1948, Israel budded as a nation again. The first time in almost 1867, 68 years, somewhere around there, Israel suddenly blossomed. Suddenly put forth its leaves. And I believe that that was the great prophetic sign of the Olivet Discourse. That's the one that says what Jesus was talking about here will be fulfilled entirely in this generation. And the Bible lists a generation as anywhere from 40 to 100 years. So 40 years after 1948, Bible prophecy students were real excited. 1988, we're at the end of a generation. Might this be the year of the rapture of the church? And of course, you know 1988 came and 1988 went. But 1989 followed. I know, profound, huh? <laughs> Luke says that Jesus said, when you see the fig tree... And all the trees. What does that mean? Our brother Ray Rent wrote what I think is one of the most important books that I have ever read. And I would highly recommend you get a hold of Ray and go get me that book. I'll pay you whatever it costs. (laughs) It's not a plug for Ray. The book is called A Season for All Time. And Ray hit upon something I have never found or seen anywhere else. But he is right on target. He talks about in the book how in 1989... Nations began to sprout like no time before in history. Remarkably, when the Berlin Wall fell. Gang, when the Soviet Union collapsed, did you know 15 republics emerged as sovereign, independent nations? And when the Berlin Wall fell, East Germany and West Germany reunified as a new nation. The Warsaw Pact, nations emerged independently of each other. So you can add seven to the 15 when the Soviet Union collapsed, and we're now at 22 budding nations in three years. 
It had never happened before. Most of I was in, I don't even know where I was then. I think I just started youth ministry and I was wandering around, you know, I had no idea. No one had any idea what was taking place around us. People were excited, but the prophetic implications here, Yugoslavia sprouted into five republics. Two more would emerge. The most recent in 2008 was Kosovo. And so now, 29 countries in three years, and in the past 20 years, five more have joined the list for a total of 34 brand new countries in this generation. And I put to you all the trees. When you see the fig tree budding, Israel, and you see all of a sudden all the trees, you know that the summer is near. Rick, why do you think we're in the last days? The fig tree and all the trees. And I believe the great expectation of Israel is very near. Verse 34, be on guard. So that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation. Dissipation is drunkenness or giddiness. It literally refers to hangover. Don't be weighed down with hangovers. And drunkenness, which typically, you know, if you're going to have a hangover, you've probably had the drunkenness, so the two go hand in hand. And, for those of you who go, well, I don't touch a drop. And the worries of life. Stress. Anxiety. Fear. Well, I don't drink, but I sure am freaked out. you got a problem. <laughs> and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Be on guard so that doesn't happen, for it will come about upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, not just Jerusalem. That great day is going to hit everyone. It is worldwide in its scope. And that day is certain. It is as certain as Jesus fulfilled prophecy in 70 A.D. The day of His great return is absolutely certain. The great messianic expectation of Israel will come. And in verse 36, Jesus says this. And it's the one hint to the rapture. But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And I call that the great escape. The great escape. The Christians in AD 70 took Jesus at His word and got out. They made a great escape. Christians will again experience a great escape. This time it will be a heavenly escape. And note Jesus' words are very clear. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things. Everything that that He's talking about here. Everything through that great tribulation, through the the return, all of these horrific, uh, amazing, stupendous events... Pray that you might have strength to escape all of this. And Jesus is coming. And there is first a calling to meet the Lord in the air before He sets foot on the ground. And Jesus said in Revelation 3 verse 10, because you have kept the word of My perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to keep you from it. I'm going to pull you out before the tribulation hits. I am going to rapture my church. Rapture, you know, catch you up. That's what the word means. I'm going to catch up the church. I'm going to catch up the church. 
Doesn't mean that we're going to be a condiment, okay? I'm going to catch you up. You will be caught up. And I won't read them all right now. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Read them. And you might say, well, okay, but I've heard this before. This is what the world says, by the way. The rapture is just Christian escapism. And my reply, of course it is. Absolutely it is. Yes. It is the great escape. The word escape means to break loose, to be free of confinement. Man, I'm confined right now. Anyone else feeling a little confined in these bodies? Aside from maybe you 18, 19, 21-year-olds who think you're impervious to anything, you'll find out. (laughs) Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, Indeed, while we are in this earthly tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Not by death, by life. And the promise of the great escape is that there will be those who are alive at the time that Jesus calls His church home, those who have not died in Christ, but who happen to still be alive and will not taste death. They will go. And the mortal will be swallowed up by life. And even those who have died in Christ will be swallowed up immortal by life. And Jesus says, and note this, it is an absolute command. Pray, He commands. Pray that you have strength for the great escape. Pray that you have strength for all these things. Pray to escape. How do I pray to escape? I'll tell you right now. First, you pray for salvation. You pray for the Lord Jesus to come into your life. You invite Him into your heart. You confess that you believe in His crucifixion and His resurrection. And you have just prayed the prayer of the great escape. Because if you enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And if you're walking in that relationship right now, then Jesus' words to you, Jesus' words to me are, pray for the hoopamone. Pray for the endurance. Pray to hang in there. Pray that you will be among those who have kept the word of my perseverance. And I will keep you from the hour that is about to come upon the whole world. The great escape. Jesus' word is true. And I absolutely believe and take Him at His word for everything that we've looked at this morning. I know it's been a long morning. I appreciate you guys hanging in. But understand that Jesus coming, the calling home, the great escape of the church, it's going to come in the twinkling of an eye.